Hello, everybody, and welcome to this week's Master Instructor Roundtable. I'm Regional Master Instructor Marty Miller, here with my dear friend, as always, fellow Regional Master Instructor, Miss Wendy Batts. Wendy, how are you? I'm good, Marty. How are you? Awesome. We got a great two-part series coming up on the knee as we were uh, had a lot of people request that. So I think this is going to be uh, another fun topic to jump into. Oh, I agree. I mean, considering we spent a lot of time talking about the foot and ankle complex just the last few weeks, I think it's important to talk about the knee because, again, we did also talk about the hip. And as you will see throughout this presentation, as well as our next webinar that we do, um, you're going to see that the knee just kind of goes along for the ride. And unfortunately, um, it is a joint that is affected in so many different ways. And um, so hopefully you guys tune in not only for the entire portion of today, but next week as well. Yep, actually, and it's funny, going back to my athletic training days, you know, a lot of people have knee problems. We used to look at the knee. Now we look at, you know, first, now we look at it last. And I kind of jokingly say the knee's kind of a stupid joint. It'll do what the foot and ankle and the hip tell it to do. But we do have to kind of dive through and talk about the anatomy, what the joint motions are. And I think people should have a, gr a much greater understanding of why people have knee issues after this. Absolutely. And I think if we go and look even at the next slide of what we're going to talk about today, I mean, you can, you know, obviously we're going to talk about the bones and joints and the muscles. And, you know, this isn't an anatomy lesson, but it really is important to realize that there are a lot of things that when it doesn't fire optimally or there's, you know, misalignment throughout the kinetic chain, that the knee can take such a hit. And then we can see all these issues and people are like, oh, I blew out my ACL and I did this. And, you know, and it's not that they're contact injuries, which is crazy. You know, it's not like, you know, it's different if you're on a football field and you've got a 300 pound lineman that goes crashing into your knee. That makes sense. But when you pivot to turn around and get your car keys and blow out your knee, that's that's a problem. So we are going to talk about, uh, you know, obviously the anatomy some as well as the joint arthrokinematics. And, you know, I did have someone ask the other day what that what does that mean? And just basically, if we want to give just a quick you know, definition, the easiest thing that I usually tell people is to think of it as like the study of the motions that occur at the joint spaces. Um, during bone movements. And so that's just kind of the easiest way when you're talking about that. It's it's a very, it's it's hard to say, but that's the easiest way to explain it. And when we go through hopefully some of the uh, the presentation, it can ease, ease people's mind when we use these big words of, of trying to simplify it, hopefully a little bit. Uh, Marty and I put together a ton of different research, you know, so we are going to talk about the abnormal muscle activation patterns and when things are not firing optimally, why do we, we talk about this every week is because with statistics and we look at all the research that's occurring, it, you know, there are simple solutions to minimize these statistics. And so we wanted to bring, you know, forth the research of what we found and why we do what we do. And then, of course, we are going to talk about the common movement impairments. Yeah, excellent job doing the recap there, Wendy. And I think after this two-week series, I think people truly understand why we are such a stickler on form and technique starting at the foot and ankle because you're going to – and everyone here watching is going to see what happens at the foot is going to drive the arthrokinematics at the knee. And this is why every week Wendy and I always talk about proper five kinetic chain checkpoints. Start with your feet straight ahead and work up the chain. So I think this will kind of bring all that to light as we move forward. Yeah, and if you want to kind of talk about some of these common injuries, I mean, I think this is not going to be a shocker to most anyone, but. Uh. <laughs> yeah, so when we put this together, we went right to the most recent CES content, and we took this right from everything that NESM has been working to validate over the years of the model. So this is uh, research that you'll, you'll see, and we grabbed a couple. We didn't grab everything, of course. So, you know, some, some basic things that I just really think do a great job of underlying the importance of what we teach at NESM. So when you look at the injuries in the lower extremity, this accounts for 66, you know, two thirds of all injuries. And you'll see that uh, research has been back from 2002. And of course, we've talked about at the beginning, the knee is one of the most common injury regions within the body. And one of the most severe injuries related to knee is that rupture, as Wendy talked about, of the ACL. Yes, contact injuries occur. But shockingly, to some people, not to us, because we've been studying this for a while, is of all ACL injuries, 70% are those non-contact. It's not 70% are contact. It's 70% are non-contact during single foot contact, meaning contact of the person putting their foot down, not external contact, uh, secondary to uncontrolled lower extremity biomechanics. So this is why we do core work. We do balance work. We always focus on every 
Master Instructor Roundtable, we talk about the process of the OPT model because it covers that between the stability, strength, and power phases. And then, of course, there's a lot of other uh, issues that come into lower extremity, especially if we're focusing on the knee. You can look at patellar tendinopathy or just inflammation or pain in that uh, tendon, patellar femoral pain syndrome, and then IT band syndrome. So these are just some of the common things that you'll see within the research on how affected the knee gets uh, as we look at uh, the injuries that occur, especially correlated with bad biomechanics. Well, and I mean, as you, you kind of alluded to earlier, I mean, I've had multiple runners come in to work with me. And the first thing is if they say to me is I have IT band syndrome and I'm like, oh, okay. And so, you know, I'll actually, you know, get out my goniometer or I'll do like, you know, I'll look at the foot and ankle and then I immediately go to the hips and I look at their hips. So like, no, no, I'm having issues at my knee. <laughs> like, yes, but you've got to think about the main muscle that, you know, blends into the IT band would be your TFL. And so because of it, its insertion, you know, when it goes past the knee and inserts on the outer, you know, um, lateral part of the leg on the lower limb, I mean, yes, all of this stuff plays such a big role. But I mean, when they say syndrome or pain, or I've got this pulling, you know, well, what's causing it? Well, you've got to think about the muscles that are involved that control the knee itself. And so, you know, and I know that's what we're going to spend a lot of time on. Yeah. And just to be clear, we're talking um, about the research on injuries and depending on your background, you know, we're here to deal with healthy people. However, a lot of the healthy people that you're going to deal with had these issues in the past and maybe mm -hmm. they've resolved them, maybe not. Uh, and when I say maybe not, the biomechanical issues that cause it could still be there. They just may not be currently in pain because they maybe have stopped exercising, whatever the case may be. So myself and Wendy, we have uh, the, the background to work in the medical space. So when we say that, just understand that we know the scope of practice that we're working with. But the majority of your clients are either going to have movement dysfunction that could elicit lower body issues, especially in the knee, as they increase their activity, or have had it in the past, as Wendy said, with runners, athletes, et cetera. That's why, again, we talk about the process between the assessments, moving up through the different phases of training, so that way we can correct those so then they can become more active and avoid a lot of this. Yes. Very well put, Marty. <laughs> well, we go into the next slide and we start to, you know, think even more about the bones. I mean, so we've got the tibia, the fibula, as well as the femur, and then your patella, so your kneecap. And these are the primary bones of of the knee. This is what makes up the knee. So when you're thinking about it, there's not all of these bones that you would see in your hand or in your foot. I mean, it's kind of pretty basic. However, if this stuff doesn't, you know, if it's not properly lined up and it being a hinge joint, which we're going to talk about here next, um, there can be a lot of discomfort because think of a doorway. A doorway is a hinge. And when it's, you know, it's seated correctly, everything moves the way that it's supposed to. However, if you pull down and that hinge, it's not seated correctly then the door doesn't move right, you know, and long-term, you're going to have an issue with your door. Well, your knee is the same way. So well that's said. the easiest way. Huh? And yeah. it, just, it describes it perfectly. <laughs> yes. Well, you know, very visual. So I'm trying to think, okay, how did I learn this? This is yes. how I learned it. So, um, but if we go to the next slide and, and kind of even go into more detail, Marty, you want to take us with this? Absolutely. So we touched on with Wendy's last description of that it's a hinge joint. So that means it primarily works in the sagittal plane. That doesn't mean it only works in the sagittal plane. But when you go through the different joints, let's take the most common and easiest to look at would be a ball and socket joint, such as my shoulder or hip. You get a lot of mobility, but when you get mobility, you lose stability. So the knee can move in multiple planes. It's just not very dramatic. It's not excessive motions in the frontal or transverse plane. So if we start left and then move our way to right, so the extension and flexion is the primary motion where that joint's going to move in the sagittal plane. We all know what a leg extension, leg curl looks like, squats, lunges. We know that motion. Then there is some valgus and varus. Now we try to eliminate excessive valgus and varus. And when we see movement compensations as we talk about, that would mean excessive. Is there a little joint play? Absolutely. And that helps prevent a lot of injuries because the motion of the knee can move slightly in the frontal plane in that valgus and varus, but we have a lot of 
attachments to the bones that would prevent excessive. And that's where if we get excessive, we start to tear the medial collateral, the lateral collateral, et cetera. Those are things we don't want to have happen. So as we go back now, so we went through the first two. So as we move forward, there's other motions. We've got anterior and posterior shifting. So you'll see that as you look, the patella is pointed forward. So if we're looking at it, we're looking at an anterior, posterior. So this would be like if I was doing a leg extension. So this is where we have to be careful with excessive weight on a leg extension because you will get some shifting of a fixed bone on the one that is in the open chain. So some of that is fine, but we don't want excessive anterior and posterior shifting. And that's why we have an ACL and PCL, anterior cruciate ligament and posterior cruciate ligament to limit excessive motion. Then of course, you'll see in the transverse plane, we have the internal external rotation. And then we also have movement more distal. And then we have that medial lateral shift begin in the frontal plane. So the ones that the most the people are most familiar with would be the extension flexion, the valgus varus, and the internal external rotation. So a lot of motion from extension flexion, limited in the others. That's why, again, we go through the movement assessment and make sure that people can maintain that neutral position of the knee. So that way they do not put any strain on the soft tissue within that joint. Very well done. Thank and you. yeah, I like it. And and again, this is why the assessments are so important because if things are not ideally lined up, meaning that kneecap isn't over the second and third toe, you're going to notice. I mean, just think the amount of pressure that you're putting on either the medial or inside of the knee, or if it happens to be shooting out, like how much pressure is being put on the outside. And like to Marty's point, it needs to stay as straight as possible. So therefore that hinge is working accordingly and you're not going into any of these, these motions that, you know, they're not made to be excessive. It's made for support and stability. So there you go. <laughs> uh, so if we move on. Of course, you know, the, the knee, as Marty just said, it, you know, and I said earlier, it's a hinge joint. So we've got the synovial joint composed of two articulations, meaning what are the primary bones that make up these joints? So you have the tibia and the femur make up the tibiofemoral joint. And then you have the patellofemoral joint, which is basically the patella and the femur. And so, you know, these are important to know because, again, when people are talking about tibiofemoral pain, it allows you to know where in the knee exactly they're feeling some discomfort. And as Marty said, and I will say again, we're not there for pain. Discomfort we can take, you know, we can actually work with. And if they're working with a physical therapist or they're working with someone and there's a PT or corrective exercise program. However, a lot of this pain is related to improper movement patterns causing that compressive force onto areas that you know shouldn't be uh, having that much force placed upon it. And so when you're thinking about it, as Marty said, your the intention is to flex and extend um, with you know, and then it is capable of additional motion. However, you really want to think when you know how much motion do you really want in the frontal and transverse planes? Not a lot. And so you know you want to just always think that even though it may move in all three planes of motion, you want it to be minimal in frontal and transverse. And when you look at knee pain for or discomfort, and you can remove the fact that no one's ever had a traumatic injury, somehow they've earned that pain. And I know that sounds crazy, but there's dysfunction over a period of time that's causing some type of bad motion now. Mm -hmm. Yes. And so, you know, and you'll also, you know, often think too, if somebody comes in with patellofemoral pain and they do really leg or heavy leg extensions on a machine, well, that kind of makes sense because you got to think you're, like you said, you're putting a lot of force in order to lift that up and think about everything that's holding that joint together. There's not a lot of supporting joints and they're not very big. And so, you know, you want to think if somebody really is like loves that machine, you don't want to take it away from them, but maybe limit the weight, do it single leg, not put as much force on them because there are so many other ways that you can work your quads and there's safer ways and there's ways to do it in all three planes of motion without being in a fixed machine that if they're not tracking correctly can cause increased discomfort yeah and wendy and i'll go over program design next week so i'm not going to give too much away but basically speaking is a lot of people focus on well my knee hurts i need to strengthen my quads and they gravitate to that machine where that could actually be causing the problem we'll get into the importance of the motion of the ankle the motion of the hip as well as the strength of the glutes that really helps with the knee pain. Always the glutes. <laughs> 
<laughs> gotta love that muscle. But uh, then no you've doubt. got this, this screw, <laughs> this screw home mechanism. So as Marty talked about, when we're talking about there's there's exercises that you can do in an open chain. And all that means is basically, let's say you're sitting, as you can see in this picture, someone's sitting off of a table, their feet are not fixed to the ground. That is an open chain exercise. So as you can see, this individual is doing banded knee extension. And so when you're having someone perform this, the knee extends during the last 30 degrees. And so the tibia is going to externally rotate on the femur to lock the knee into extension. So, you know, that's going to make the ligaments taut. So you want to keep that in mind that you can, if somebody's having, you know, discomfort or you want them to actually really focus on proper movement patterns, maybe start them in an open chain type exercise. However, one of my favorite exercises is performed, as you can see, in the closed chain, and it's called a TKE. And so when, when you're doing um, terminal knee extension, you're trying to get everything to work together. So as you can see, this individual, both feet are fixed onto the ground. And then what she would end up doing is take that left leg and fully extend. And so what you're trying to do is really try to work on, as you can see, the femur is going to internally rotate the tibia. And given that the foot is fixed on the ground. And so that's what the body's intended to do. There is slight motion. However, you're focusing primarily on the proper quads, glute activation, and making sure everything, again, is working um, within, working the right way. You're trying to fire the right muscles. So therefore, that hinge joint is, is um, working mainly in flexion and extension. And let's throw this out here right now. I know it says right there, the tibia will externally rotate on the femur. We are talking minuscule amounts. So right. I, I could wait for a question going, well, why shouldn't the feet be actually rotated when we squat? We're talking a few degrees at terminal extension. It, you know what I mean? So the foot would still be neutral when it's on the ground. So I, I just want to make sure that uh, we understand that we're not changing anything after all these years that uh, all of a sudden it's okay to have the feet actually rotated 15, 20 degrees. When you do it naturally, you wouldn't even pick it up when someone's foot is straight. It just happens a very small amount, only at terminal extension to make sure those ligaments are taut. So just always want to throw that out there. Feet still straight ahead. Very good point. Sometimes yeah. I take this for granted, Marty, and I was like, oh, you know what? Yeah, I should have said that. I like it. <laughs> now, there's a question coming in from Colin. I'll, I'll jump in, no pun intended, on this one about the jump rope aggravating knee pain. Colin, great question. But if you look at jump rope, that's a power phase exercise, whether you're jumping over and it's only an inch or if you're doing however the height of the jump rope, it is a jump. So if somebody has biomechanical issues, they can't load eccentrically properly. It's not the exercise that's causing the problem. It's the fact that they may be in a phase of training that they're not ready for. Or if over the years of running or over the years of playing sports, there's enough degeneration in their knees and the muscles can't support the structure without some bone on bone, it could just be something like that. But if it's somebody that's relatively healthy and does not have any knee pain that you're aware of, one, we got to stop if they're not appropriate, if it's not appropriate for them, but it's possible that they haven't gone through the proper phases of training to repetitively load that plyometric exercise, even though it's not as high as a box jump, et cetera, it is still a power-based exercise. Yes. And, and Colin, think about when we talk about our plyometric training, especially in the, in the uh, CPT, there's a reason why even just under reactive training, when we're focusing on that, that in like a phase one, we're really trying to get proper, you know, muscles to activate and work correctly. So it would be like a squat jump to hold. So you're working on landing mechanics. So if you've got someone in phase one, you know, doing jump rope and they don't have proper landing mechanics and knees caving in, feet are going out, think about, and then you're constantly, you know, putting your, that force onto that, that joint, it can be very, very, you know, to cause a lot of discomfort. However, once you get into more of the strength phases, you'll notice it's more repetitive. And so maybe you've strengthened the muscles and, and properly lined things up to where maybe that's when you would start to incorporate, as Marty said, that would be more of an appropriate time. And then, of course, if you want to have the double unders and, and, you know, speed work and everything, ideally, that would be more in power. However, how are they jump, doing the jump rope? What are they doing? You know, is it, you know, are, are they doing skills that they're not, they're focusing too much on like just getting under the rope and not how they're landing all of that you know plays an important role so and there's another um uh, question i want to read it to you marty i'll let you take this why does quad stretch become painful with the third degree acl tear gotcha so third degree acl tear that is a medical <laughs> situation that person is more than likely going to have surgery 
you know, I can't say always, but more than likely, because that means a complete tear. So when you have a complete tear, there's trauma to the body. So it, your body is going to swell immediately. And now you may not see the swelling as in other joints because sometimes the swelling is internal. So that's going to limit the ability to go into knee flexion. Plus when the ACL is not intact, those bones are going to shift or with the guarding. Now you're not going to be able to get that quad into a flexible, you know, into that stretching position that you would normally uh, be looking for. So that's where this turns into a medical situation where possible surgery, then coming out of the surgery after the third degree ACL tear and the surgical repair, that person has not gotten back into knee flexion. Like we take for granted, I'm sitting right now in knee flexion. We go through some range of knee flexion every single day, which is going to help keep some range of motion. So after the ACL tear, their body's going to, in the surgery, their body's gonna go into more trauma, even though you need the surgery. So you're going to have to really work hard to get that range of motion back. But that's why they go to physical therapy for 12, 16 weeks, depending on how their body responds. Yes. And that kind of brings it into this too, when we're talking about even the the different type of mechanisms. So when you're thinking about the extensor mechanism, you know, you're thinking about this being composed of the patellofemoral articulation. So you've got your patella tendon, the quads tendon, the tibial tubercle all working together. So when you're producing concentric, eccentric, and isometric actions, this is these are the primary um, things that really do need to work together and play play well in order to you know maximize flexion and extension and all the different um, exercises that you're doing. So, excellent. There's yeah. another. I mean, these are great questions today. So um, I can jump in here on this one. Peter's sure. question is: How would you approach someone in the geriatric population? For example, someone who's to the point that they can't even sit down without holding on to something. So. Again, to me, that could be that they're in pain, so they may need to go to physical therapy because one, in a physical therapy clinic, they may have other tools and modalities and then a different understanding of what truly is going on. They may put somebody in a pool. They may have uh, equipment that gets people in and out, or they have treadmills now where they can take the pressure off and do non-weight bearing. But let's assume that this person is allowed to come into a generalized fitness program is you have got to be created. You may keep them standing and do single, like, supported single leg balance exercises, right? To get the glutes going, or you may have to get creative with your programming to where they maybe do some exercises sitting and they stay in that seated position. So again, we, I can't give you all the specifics, but make sure we're not working with somebody that should be more into that medical realm doing physical therapy, because if they can't sit down without holding on to something and, and if there's pain in that, we have to be careful. So I know you didn't put the pain part in there, but uh, you know, we just got to be careful how we treat that person. So Wendy, I know that we both worked with these type of clients. So do you have any mm -hmm. other advice for Peter? Uh, you know, Peter, and, and like I said, that's when the, you, you would talk to their doctor, because I mean, unfortunately you are going to get clients that are in more of the advanced age ranges. And so when they come in, a lot of times people, unfortunately start to get bone on bone. And it, you know, it can limit range of motion. It can limit, you know, it can cause discomfort or pain. And so you've got to work within the limitations of that particular individual. That's why when we talk about the assessments and we talk about the subjective of getting the information that you need, that stuff is going to be very, very important because how long has this person been in pain? Is this, did, there, did something occur that then caused pain later on? Or is this some, uh, something that's happened gradually? Or is it because their muscles are so weak that it just hurts for them to move? And then you can work on some different um, exercises that is maybe open chain where they don't have to, you know, worry about getting up or, or sitting down. So you could do some, you know, like you saw in that picture, some band work of flexion and extension, or even just some simple leg lifts where they're not even using anything. And so it's not, you're not even having to worry about them holding on to something. So then it becomes a safety issue. You're just working primarily on strengthening the, the muscles that will help, um, you know, move the knee accordingly. So hopefully that helps. Yeah. And Wendy, in my facility prior to switching over to my current role is it was a private country club. So I knew that 50% of my population would be 16 over. So as we designed it, we had an elevated mat table mm -hmm. and that way I could get them there on off easy, keep them there for pr prolonged period of time, doing single leg raises, bridging exercises. I didn't have to get them up and move them around the facility. So part of when you, we look at facilities and I'm not saying everyone can design the facility they're working in, but we need to make sure that we have the right tools to elicit the outcomes for the majority of people that are coming into our facility. 
So that kind of brings you into the next question, Marty, if you want to take that, we may just be answering questions all day, but this is totally fine. But how can a coach serve a client with arthritis? It's kind of the, the same thing. Sure. So here's, here's the key thing is you may be working with people and you don't even know they have arthritis because they move well enough and you're not putting them in uh, positions where their joint is compromised. Or you may find as you go through somebody, even their assessment looks pretty good. But when they get in certain range of motion, they're like, yeah, my knee just kind of has an ache. Well, we stay away from it. And this is where we've got the science of training, and then it comes down to the art of training, of course. So we've talked about that. And it's just really trying to understand what positions are putting that person into that uh, strain. Is it the open chain exercises? So question everything you do. Is it a deeper squat? Is there a range of motion I can work within? If I can work within that range of motion, what muscles might be not getting targeted or what muscles are weak that are allowing the joint to maybe be put in a bad position as they squat to where they are getting some of that aches and pains. I'm going to tell you, the majority of those people are going to have tight calf complexes, tight hip flexor complexes, possibly tight adductors, and very weak glute, deep intrinsic core stabilizers, and all the muscles in the foot and ankle that we talked about before in the last three master instructor roundtables. So this is where you have to work within that. And then again, maybe instead of treadmills, you put them on a recline bike. Maybe you get them in a pool, depending on what, again, you have the ability to do. And then you can really kind of be surprised how much you can get out of them once you realize what you need to eliminate that's causing it and what you can do to get their lower body functioning to a higher level. All right, let's take one more question. And Marty, I, I, I think... Uh, I, I think he actually knows the answer, but I think he wants, I want you to say what you think. And then I can also say what I think. But he says, I have a client that complains about knee pain when doing renegade rows. It hurts when rowing one arm, but not while holding the plank with both hands on the floor. So what can be the cause? Her knees do, doesn't hurt when squatting or lunging. And during the overhead squat, her knees cave in, which is what they're working on. Got it. Okay. So when we do a renegade row, that's an advanced exercise for anybody. You know, again, we got to make sure the weight is proper, right? Because I could do a renegade row with, let's say, 15 pounds and really control everything. Or I could go to 20 or 25 pounds and all of a sudden now I've got to compensate and other muscles are going to kick in. So if I'm dialed in and stable, I've got everything neutral. I've got the right muscles fired for that are the primary stabilizers. But if all of a sudden I try to get ahead of myself and I'm still doing the exercise, that's where maybe the adductor magnus kicks in. The adductors kick in. And now that's going to shift the position of the knee even in a renegade row. So this is all those little details that uh, come into play when we're looking at movement patterning and firing the right muscles at the right time to keep the joints either moving in the right direction or stabilized in a neutral position. Well done. All right. That's, tw that's twice today. I can. I'm I know. Out. I mean, I, yeah, I, I don't even know why I'm here today other than let me just read the questions for you. <laughs> but if we go ahead and move on to the next one, these are the, the muscles. So that kind of leads into to the, the next slide, which is fantastic. You have to think, you know, these these muscles don't make up the knee. However, these muscles can control the knee. And so when something and in, in, in this hopefully is now starting to click, we talk so much about the foot and ankle and the importance of not having proper range of motion. We talk so much about different positions of the hip and how, you know, when, when things are shortening, how it can, you know, actually cause more stress to certain joints. Well, that knee is no exception. So you really want to think, how is the adductor complex? So when we were talking about, you know, Rocco's specific example, you know, with the knees caving in, well, the adductors are usually one of the primary, you know, muscles that are going to cause that to happen when overactivity is there. And so you want to look at the adductors, you want to look at the, you know, the, um, the calves, you obviously want to think about what's happening at the glutes. So the glute maximus and medius oftentimes super weak, and that can cause disruption at the knee. And then the same thing with the medial and lateral hamstring complex. Lateral is usually overactive, medial is usually underactive. And so there is a difference when you're really looking at the hamstring complex of what's going on and what's happening at the knee. And then of course the quads, and then always the TFL that will blend into that IT band that crosses the knee joint. Absolutely, and that's a great pickup because a lot of times people would do some exercise like that and just kind of, you know, bypass it, but that's telling you something. So great job on that. Okay. And Marty, I know we kind of discussed this when we talked about squats, but just, just before we, it'll kind of go into this, you know, the misalignment of the knee. And when we talk about even, 
there's different types of distortion patterns here, but can you go over the knee position in a loaded back squat? So a lot of people mentioning forcing the knees to go outward. Yeah. Um, again, I've been in this career since day one. This is the only thing I've ever done. And I started in powerlifting um, before I got into education. And this is one of those uh, things that won't go away. And, and what I mean by that is it comes down to what is the goal? Is the goal how much weight I can lift or is the goal how well I can lift the weight that's appropriate for me? We, we know biomechanically when I'm out of the five kinetic chain checkpoints, we're putting more strain through the kinetic chain, whether it's the knee joint, the low back, you name it. It depends on the exercise and in that person. So if I'm allowing a compensation and knees out is a compensation, you are feeding into that compensation. You're saying, hey, get stronger moving incorrectly. It just That just is the way I like to explain it. It's just all honesty. So now if the goal is to compete um, a competitive power lifter like I used to be back in the day, where it's the judges are going to be like, well, Marty, you move fairly well to 18 degrees. And this, no, it's we either made it or we didn't, right? There has to be a gold standard. So the butt has to get below the knee. They don't care how well you move the weight. They care how far you move the weight. So we're talking about two different sides of a kind of like a teeter-totter here. With NESM in the fitness population, when we're not competing, we're looking at highest um, reward exercises with the lowest risk on a progressive scale. Earn the right to move to the next level. Move well, move well under load, move well at high speed. If I'm competing, whether it's the new type of things like CrossFit now is more common than when I grew up in the industry in powerlifting. If I have a division one football player and they get tested the day they walk into camp, we play sports because we enjoy them. I'm an athletic trainer. Wendy's heard this a thousand times. I went to school waiting for athletes to get injured. It's not a matter if it's a matter of when and how bad and can we prevent some of them. So if I'm dealing with a division one football player, yes, I'm going to get them to squat to the depth that they're going to get judged on. I'm going to try to eliminate all the compensation so they get the right muscles firing at the right time so they will be stronger and less chance of injury. But I may have to accept that if they come to me four weeks before their season, I may not have time to fix everything. But if I have somebody come to the gym and say, hey, I just want to be fit and healthy, I am never going to allow those compensations. So my athletes, I'm going to work to eliminate them as best I can. My fitness people, I'm not going to allow them at all because I'm feeding into it. So the reason you see it is because people have to gain depth that they haven't earned. So they compensate. They let their feet go out. They do other things throughout the kinetic chain because they could not get to the depth to be judged appropriately. So since they haven't earned it, they have to steal it from somewhere else. So that's my take. <laughs> <laughs> well, hopefully Josh said he loved that. So that's good. Um, okay. One one quick question, and then I'll answer this one, and then Marty, you can take us about some of these uh, malalignments here we've got listed. But can a tight or weak glute lead to a low back pain while performing an overhead squat? Well, yes. So the answer is yes, yes, and yes. However, what does your assessment say? So when you say tight or weak, those are two separate things, unless you are talking about like what's happening here. Usually an overactive piriformis can cause low back pain because there's compression on the sciatic nerve and you know, that can lead to something. And if there's an anterior pelvic tilt, we've always talked about overactivity in the hip flexors and super weak glutes. So then you're starting to load your overhead squat or even performing an overhead squat. Or is, is did you notice that the arms fell forward? If the arms fell forward and they had an anterior tilt, the lats could be, you know, playing tug of war on the lower back. And so therefore you're not getting, you know, great activation, especially if you're doing an overhead because they, as Marty said, they didn't earn the right to lift their arms up. And so they're going to have to get the motion from some place. And unfortunately, the lower back usually loses. So it's hard to say without knowing more about the assessment. If there's an anterior tilt, yes, it definitely can, can hurt. If the arms fall forward, yes, you definitely can cause an issue. If their feet turn out, yes, definitely can also cause pain, discomfort. So fix the feet, work on the five kinetic chain checkpoints, get full glute activation, get better range of motion in the lat, and then hopefully that will lead to dis less discomfort and proper movement throughout that particular exercise. And also go visit our low back, um, you know, uh, round tables that we've done because we went into a lot of detail about that. Great plug, Wendy. I know, right? <laughs> 
All right, take us home here, Marty, on these uh, on these next few slides here, or this okay. one. Yeah. So when you watch somebody walk in, you can see their transitional, but when they stand in front of you, you could see some of their static malalignments, right? Because we've been we have our standard postures. Like Wendy, I know you've talked about how when you had the little guy on your hip for a while, you had to work um, from shifting <laughs> that when you were carrying your little man. So this ends up again feeding into movement patterns. So when we look at the lower body, just uh, issues. So we have Pes planus distortion syndrome, which, you know, starts at the foot. Then we talk about Q angle. So the Q angle is one, and this is a study, one study that shows there's about a 10 degree shift in the Q angle increases the patellofemoral contact by 45. So that's extensive. So when we look at our Q angle, we're going to draw a line right up from the kneecap through the pelvis and then down from the head of the femur down to the patella. And there's a certain angle that we want there. A small 10% shift increases the forces by 45%. So imagine an excessive. So we may talk about this next week when people do the curtsy lunges and all that, and they see what's, imagine what's going on when you shift your knee like that, or if you don't fix these uh, Q angle issues. So these are why it's so important. And then this decreased flexibility of the quads, hamstring complex, and IT band back from Sarman, who's one of the gurus in all movement science from a physical therapy standpoint, we know that there's bad things coming your way, now, especially when these people try to become more active, right? If they get into that high intensity and that speed, agility, quickness, too fast, too quick, maybe like the jump rope we talked about. So that's why we really need that structural integrity from the foot all the way up through the hip because the knee is right there in the center. Yes. Well, if we move on to the next slide and we start really kind of thinking a little bit about some of these. Now, all of this, as Marty mentioned, most of it is in our corrective exercise text. And so when you have abnormal muscle activation, so think about the muscles that we just covered. When those are not firing correctly, it can lead to patellofemoral pain, which is the PFP that you're seeing right there, ACL injuries and other knee injuries. Well, then again, if the abnormal contraction of certain muscles, that's also going to offset the timing of the VMO. And the VMO is that big muscle, I call it the teardrop muscle. And that is one of the primary muscles. I know even in physical therapy that we really try to get to activate first, um, even in open chain exercises, because it helps track the patella. And so, you know, making sure that all these muscles are, are firing correctly in the right pattern is really going to help with your knee alignment. And so, you know, again, when you're looking at some of these different research, so when you're looking at the Ireland research, which, which was in 2003, they demonstrated that 20% less hip abduction strength and 30% less hip external rotation strengths in subjects with PFP, this will lead to increased femoral adduction and internal rotation. So, think about what's happening at the hip. All of this can affect the knee. And then of course, you know, when we're thinking too, without proper movement, they also, you know, a different study showed that a decrease in hip abduction strength will also increase patellofemoral pain. And lastly here, before we even get to the more research on the next slide, we're looking at long distance runners with IT band syndrome. And so they had reduced hip abduction strength with the affected leg and observed that their symptoms were alleviated with successful return to running after undergoing just specific hip abductor strengthening. And so that's why it's important, guys. Again, it's not about all this anatomy, but look at your solutions table. If you see the knee caving in, so valgus or, you know, knees in just even in basic terms, there are specific muscles to foam roll and stretch, but the outer hip is going to need to be strengthened and that can save the knee in so many different ways. So when we look at the, the next slide and kind of just finishing up with some of the different research here, you're going to see again, Baker, we're talking about hip abductor weakness again. It's going to influence knee or greater knee valgus. And then when you look at some other ones with decreased hip external rotation strength, that's going to have um, increased vertical ground reaction forces during landing, which is also going to cause or could lead to patellofemoral pain as well as ACL injuries. So think about how many times you've seen us play videos or even probably at your own gym. If you guys go watch a pickup game with some youth athletes or, or you know, weekend warriors that don't really stretch, they just go out and play and you see them go up and jump when they're shooting, watch how they come down. And sometimes it can be extremely scary. And so it's our job, hopefully, and one of the reasons why we just do a basic squat 
that we realign the knee because if there is, you know, um, feet turning out, feet flattening, knees caving in, think about that. And then now jumping or if the question about the jump rope, you know, if you had someone jump rope with those compensations, think about the amount of stress and potential injury that could happen because of the repetitive movement without correction. So I'm not going to read all of this in nope. too, too much detail, but it's, it's on the CES. And the key thing is I haven't seen research yet that says overactive glutes cause problems. Oh, well, <laughs> um, so I'm going to ask you a couple questions, Marty. So sure. first, oh, well, thank you. I was one of their favorite professors. Um, oh, and then I know, right. I got a call out. So how much can reciprocal or altered reciprocal inhibition contribute to knee pain when thinking about the overactivity of the hip flexors and adductors compared to the underactivity of hip extensors? I mean, that's the technical term for what's going on when we say there's muscles overactive and underactive. That's the scientific uh process that's happening. So that is exactly why we teach it. So if one muscle is overactive, the opposing muscle would be underactive. So, and then the synergists jump in. So this is, is exactly doing what we're talking about. And that's why we have to go back to the assessment, make sure we attack the right musculature with the inhibit and lengthen, and then activate and integrate appropriately. Yes. And so, yes, when you're saying a tug of war, it absolutely can play a tug of war. And so, and, and, and another reason, it's not like a CES plug, guys, literally understanding what's happening at each and every joint and being able to activate specific muscles before putting it into a complete program, it really can play such a, an important role, especially if you have, um, you know, athletes that have to do a high-packed you know, um, exercises or, you know, to play their sport immediately, what can you do to help them right then and there? So some of this stuff, hopefully um, you can take away with, even if you don't have a CES background to really help some of your, your clients that come in. So fabulous. Yeah. So if we move on. Once we move on, <laughs> we have obviously stable joints and mobile joints. And so Marty, do you want to talk about this? Yeah, this is nothing new. We'll go through it quick. Starting from the ground up, we'll talk about how this works. So if we talk about the arch of the foot, that is supposed to be primarily a stable joint. Of course, things move. The ankle is supposed to be a mobile joint. The knee, stable. Hip, mobile. And you'll see lumbar spine, stable. Thoracic spine, mobile. Shoulder, um, or cervical spine would be stable. Shoulder would be mobile. And on and on all the way out, the elbow and the wrist. So what happens is, and this is why we do our assessment, we're looking for a break in that alternating sequence where a stable joint becomes mobile or a mobile joint becomes stable. And it can happen on multiple joints or just one, and that can throw off the whole biomechanics of the rest of the body. And that's one of the reasons when we talk about this regional interdependence training model, guys, if something is like Marty said, if something has happening that's incorrect at the ankle, they may not feel it at the ankle, but that one ankle joint not moving correctly can throw out someone's shoulder. And it, I mean, it really, you know, they're coming with shoulder pain, but you start at the ankle and you look at it and there's a lot of compensation or immobility in that, you know, it's supposed to be mobile area. You really need to look at it segment by segment of what's happening and what's not right, because it can affect something way up the chain. And I, I know oftentimes, especially I have a manual therapy license, uh, somebody will complain with shoulder pain and the first place I go is their ankle. And they're like, no, 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 <laughs> I came to you for my shoulder. I'm like, yes. Let's start here and let me see what happens. And, you know, just getting better range of motion throughout all joints is going to decrease a lot of um, discomfort in other joints long term. Agreed. So, all right, well, moving on. So when we talk about, you know, somebody that has the, you know, pes planus distortion syndrome. So when, what we mean, and unfortunately, this is really scary when you see someone have this and it's very common, unfortunately, it's mainly when you're looking at someone in the assessment with their shoes off, which hopefully you're doing, um, you're going to see that they possess flat feet as well as knee valgus. And so think about the excessive force that's going on to the medial knee. Um, and, and then again, as Marty said, with the Q angle, if your knees are caving in and your hips are still in, like stable and they're at a certain level, think about it's more than 10 degrees. So, um, you know, all of that can play a role. So the important part again, will be strengthening your arches by thinking about, you know, um, your balance exercises and really trying to get good alignment there. And then also thinking about all we talked about the last three weeks. And then also really looking at what's happening at the outer hip, because there's going to be a lot of weakness in that, in that outer hip. Well said. Thanks, man. 
<laughs> and so when we look at the next one, these are just some of our transitional movement assessments. This should not be a shock to any of you guys, but if nope. you notice that someone has knee valgus, their knee shift even a little bit. So basically you're looking at the second and third toe and the kneecap. And so if that knee shifts over the big toe or more inward, that is a definite knee valgus positive test. You're going to say yes and check that box because as that person gets more and more tired, that compensation will become very, very visible um, without correction. Now, to me, knee varus, I don't see that very often. I mean, there are people that to me are, you know, they're born bow-legged. However, when they, when they walk, they kind of walk straight, but when they squat, they walk, you know, they squat with their knees out. However, at that point, I would then go into an, a single leg squat assessment. And if somebody has really weak hips causing, you know, it's usually overactivity that would call or cause knee varus. However, as soon as you put them on one leg and have them squat, their knee caves in. And so to me, that's what I notice very commonly. It's not always, so I'm not going to throw an always in there. But if you see someone with, with knee varus, put them on a single leg squat because you know it's going to be safe for them as long as they can keep their balance and see if you can see a difference. And just again, as a reminder, if you do both, you would go with your single leg squat results. And then, of course, knee dominance. And oftentimes when you see knee dominance, to me, I think it's usually a lack of understanding on how to properly squat. People were taught to squat with their back flat and often they confuse flat with vertical versus flat with, you know, making sure they have ideal alignment, meaning the parallel lines. And so if you showed them how to squat at that point, do they still have or are they still knee dominant, meaning they bend with their knee and their knee shoots over their second and third toe? That's just I don't know, Marty, if you see or think it's the same no, thing. But I think part of it sometime, in addition to what you just said, maybe an unstable core because they don't right. trust themselves and or their glutes. They don't trust sitting back because they, they know their glutes aren't strong enough or they can sense it. So they just shift forward because they feel that they can control it better. But uh, they're not taking the biomechanics into a, a part of that, of course. Uh, Marty, here's a question for you, considering this seems to be up your alley, but can combat athletes get muscle imbalances since there's a difference in range of motion of the limbs when they throw a punch or kicks repetitively? Yeah, let's just use the word athlete in there. Doesn't I, mean, <laughs> yeah. I was working with an elite uh, Olympic polo athlete yesterday, right? So they're all be they're going to be doing patterns that aren't biomechanically sound by what we're talking about, but they're biomechanically correct. There is a right way to throw a jab and a cross and a hook and kicks and you got to tuck your chin and you got to round your shoulders to make yourself the smallest target possible. I've done this for years in martial arts, but that doesn't mean I'm not creating dysfunction. It's just, I go back home, back to the gym, we'll work on everything so I can go back into the dojo and do crazy stuff. Right. And that's, that's the process. Do your sport, understand there's going to be wear and tear and stress. Come back into the gym to make sure that you have the best chance of not having that be a permanent thing when you do your sport. So yes, for combat athletes, for sure, because I've worked with a bunch of them, as well as any other athlete. There's not a sport that's good for us orthopedically. I've, <laughs> I've, I've tried to find one. Yeah, I haven't found one either. But uh, you know swimming, what? Swimming, swimming as well. I know that comes out. Yes, I've worked with swimmers. They have a lot of injuries. Well, yeah, think about the internal rotation and overactivity of lats. Ooh, yeah, it's crazy. So, Their knee valgus on certain kicks, yeah. Yes. Maybe we'll do one just on swimming. And we could, maybe. But uh, so when we talk about our key takeaways, you know, it's important to know the muscles and the patterns that you're targeting. You know, think about what's happening at the joint. Think about what the joint does. So again, think of it as a hinge joint. So when you're doing, you know, any of the exercises that you're choosing, it's always about proper setup and movement pattern. If you're going to be doing stuff, which we're going to talk about even next week, think about are they moving with their knee in line with their second, third toe? And if not, what's happening and how can you correct that? So one way of identifying that, of course, is going to always be your assessment. Your assessments will dictate your programming or should. And think about if something is not properly aligned, what's causing that, which will be the overactivity, what's allowing it, which will be the underactivity. And you're going to try to think about the OPT model. Once you see comp compensations, put them in phase one, plug and play and get them in better alignment and all should be well. Absolutely. Couldn't agree more. And that's why these bullet points are pretty much the same every week. <laughs> I tried to, I tried to, you know, change them a couple times, but yes, yeah. we have not a lot. <laughs> yeah. So we, we got through, it uh, looks like all the questions that there might be some mm -hmm. else that pops in and I want to be respectful of everyone's time. We got a couple seconds, but if we want to go to our contact information, as people maybe ponder their last questions, Wendy, you are up. 
Yes. So if you guys want to email me, um, you can find me at wendy.bats at nasm.org. You can always find me on Instagram at wendy.bats13. And then for me, email is marty.miller at nasm.org. And Instagram is dr.martymiller72. So as we wrap up, if there's no other questions, Wendy, uh, I know that you've got a lot of great content that you put out there. So if you want to plug your uh, podcast, let's uh, give them uh, that opportunity to go into that as well. Sure. You know, as we, you know, as you know, Marty and I do these master round or master instructor roundtables every Thursday around three o'clock. Um, but I also do a podcast. It's called Random Fit, and it's truly about random fitness topics. We talk about everything of what's out there in the market, things that we've seen as seen on TV. We've talked about fashion. We talked about shoes. We talk about a lot of different stuff. So um, you can find that anywhere that you listen or, or download podcasts. We would love, love to have you guys listen. Um, and then, you know, one thing, Marty, I will say, too, is Marty and I, as well as Ken Miller, are going to start teaching virtual corrective exercise workshops that are going to be starting not this weekend, but next weekend. And there's a calendar listed on NASM.org. So if you guys want to do a virtual two day or I'm sorry, one day workshop, ooh, one day workshop with us, um, it's about six hours long. We talk about the assessments. We talk about the four point process. Um, such as, you know, inhibiting, lengthening, activating and integrating and why we do what we do. Um, you know, maybe look into that if you need continued education and you'd like to listen to us for six hours, kind of go through our spill about the importance of corrective exercise. Yep. And then <laughs> on Tuesdays or Wednesdays, depending on my travel schedule, because travel's back, I do the coffee talk. And the main reason I do that is because I'm there to hang out with all of you amazing people and answer questions. I don't, there is no predetermined topic because I don't know what you guys have from a question standpoint. So speaking of, we've got chance for Josh for one last question. Is it possible to go over how a lengthened muscle can be overactive? Wendy, do you want to start off with that one and we'll go for that? Um, well, I mean, I think like when the hams take over for the inhibited glutes. Okay, so yeah, so let's say for example, that um, I'll, I'll just do this really quick, but let's say you have somebody that has an anterior pelvic tilt. And so what you're really thinking about is if the hips go forward, the hip flexors are going to be overactive, the hamstring or the glutes will be underactive, right? Because think about your hips going forward, but it's the hamstrings that are in a lengthened position. So you've got to think that if Marty had a string and I had a string and we started pulling on the string, it's, we could, we could pluck it. So it's not really tight. It's taut, meaning it is stretched from end to end. And so the worst thing you want to do or the last thing you want to do is actually put more of a stretch onto an already stretched muscle. What you would want to ideally do is lengthen the hip flexors, strengthen the glutes to realign the pelvis. And therefore, instead of you thinking that the hamstring is over or um, overactive, it's not overactive, it's actually weak and lengthened. We want to get it back into proper length and activate it correctly. So therefore your hips are back in proper alignment. And it's also, um, you know, the hamstrings are, are finally producing the, um, you know, the amount of force and doing what, what it's meant to do versus it being in a compensated lengthened, overactive, stressed out position. <laughs> so hopefully that helped. Fabulous job, Wendy. Yes. So, um, but yeah, well guys, we're going to be here again next week talking about part two. We're going to go over program design. So yeah, we hope to see you back. And if you have any questions, feel free to think of those questions and post them next week, or you can contact us um, with the information here. Awesome. Thank you everybody for your time, Wendy. It was always a pleasure. Always. Take care, everybody.